It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome back to Signal Boost. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. It's 8 o'clock on the East Coast, and it's Thursday, November the 18th. Joining us on the phone is uh, our favorite defense attorney. Our favorite legal analyst. It's the person we call if we ever get in trouble. Um, <laughs> I don't plan on getting in trouble. 100%. But it, I'm definitely calling Danny if I ever do. Um, Danny Savalas <laughs> is a legal analyst for NBC and MSNBC. Um, hello. Good morning. Good morning. And Zerlina, thank you for saying I would be your first call if you got in trouble. Now, attorney-client privilege means I can't reveal why Jess did not mention anything, was very silent. <laughs> Uh, when you mentioned who you would call when you were in trouble, I cannot I cannot say why or who mm-hmm. or reveal any attorney client confidence. <laughs> Jess, it's so good. It's so well, good. Who's more likely to get in trouble? I can say Remember nothing we, at this point. No, I am kidding, at folks. That is a shots. joke. It's oh a joke. Wrong number. Wrong number. It's a it joke. It's me. totally a joke. I'm kidding. I know, but Jess is. Remember when we took our first headshots, Jess, and you were like, "You look oh, like God. my sponsor." <laughs> you like, looked like I my sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> we were trying so. Like our our whole rule is that we have to look like we're going to the same party for taking a photo together. And I don't know if we got it wrong that day or what, but we got these photos I back. I wasn't it, prepared to do a headshots that day. I it was looked like, one of those like surprise the, the I was I was a member of the Home for Wayward Girls, and Zerlina <laughs> was my reformed sponsor, and it was just. <laughs> We didn't. We didn't use them. <laughs> oh, you didn't use them. I was going to say, are these the current headshots? No, no, no. Take a look. <laughs> no, the current headshots are when we coordinated our outfits. Uh, we were like, we'll, "What are we'll you just, wearing?" We'll yeah. just have to post the Wayward Girls reformed sponsor shots <laughs> on the internet because they are extremely funny. Um, it's but very yeah. funny. Anyway, playing to type this morning. <laughs> yes. Um, so um, there are many. Let's trials. talk about some people who are in trouble. Yeah, there's oh, three yeah. trials. Three trials happening. We're waiting for the jury to come back in the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. So I want to start there. Um, as we've sort of watched this trial, I've talked to you throughout. Um, and you sort of, you've done analysis throughout. And I think that, like, I understand the first ruling, controversial ruling by the judge not to allow the use of the term victim. Like, that made sense. His behavior subsequently, though, has been quite alarming. Just from the perspective of someone who is in court a lot, I mean, judges are kind of wacky. That's one of the ongoing plot points on the good, the good wife, for example. Is that judges are characters, and they all have distinct idiosyncrasies. Um, what's your assessment of Judge Bruce Schroeder? You know, it is easy to criticize the federal process of appointing judges for life. It is uh, natural that we would have Senate hearings and uh, and complain and argue and debate whether or not someone is fit to be a judge. And the appointment process in the federal system may seem very undemocratic. But uh, if you just want to take a look at the experiment of electing judges, look no further than Wisconsin or generally state courts where a lot of judges are elected. So as as undemocratic as appointing judges may seem, 
you know, this is where you get some of the more interesting eccentric judges is when they are elected to office. And that's what we're seeing here. And I got to tell you something. Um, I've been around plenty of judges who are eccentric as this judge. The reality is most of the time they're when they act out, it's in a pretty much empty courtroom with a couple bored defense attorneys waiting around for the case to get called. And, you know, you get this kind of uh, acting out and it's just business as usual. I mean, every judge runs his courtroom like a, his or her courtroom like a fiefdom. And uh, and so, you know, when a lot of folks are saying, hey, this judge is way out there, I guess my response is, yeah, but I'm sure there are three or four other judges that are just like him in that courthouse. So and by the way, you know, he's at least trying criminal cases. You know, what they normally do is if a judge is too far out there, they get condemned, so to speak, to a less desirable court uh, forever where they can't do much harm. So, I mean, for whatever reason, he's made it up to homicide trial. So, I mean, at least someone thinks he's competent. But let's make no mistake about it. When you elect judges, pretty much anybody could get in there. Wow. That is a terrifying thought. <laughs> I mean, I feel like there needs to be a standard for that seems for like judges that is sort of like beyond like what the average well, voter could determine. Like, I don't feel like I'm qualified to say <laughs> this is this is a great legal mind. I feel like I am qualified to say this is a good person whose values I trust. But that's not a judge. Like, that's well, that's a that's a different. Yeah, isn't position. it? Isn't it interesting that you know you would think the default position should be the, the better position we would want to be the democratic one rather than a governor or a president saying i appoint thee for life right. to a judgeship right. and and you know really and this is just my personal opinion you know when you look at the caliber i think it's generally understood that federal judges are very well vetted i mean it's almost elitist you know the kind of pedigree and credentials that they have you may not like their politics but on both sides you're not going to get a judge through unless they got a plenty of A pluses in their life. But uh, when it comes to electing judges, I mean, it's an open field. You might find interesting Pennsylvania, one of the jurisdictions I practice in, the magisterial district justices don't even need to be lawyers. They can just be some person in the community who runs for judge and gets elected. So that'll give you an idea of where democracy has gotten us with the judiciary. Okay, so that's going great. I'm glad that um, in one of the most consequential trials in terms of just like what's happening historically, we've got this guy um, in here. And and specifically in, in terms of some of his behaviors, we were talking earlier in the show about this pending uh, motion for a mistrial that he has decided he's going to wait to rule on until after the jury verdict. Is yeah, that, explain that is that normal? Can you unpack that? Uh, it relates right back to your first question. And I think, you know, you can tie this to the fact in part that this is an elected judge and consider this, you know, this is really why I think the judge is waiting. It is the risk averse uh, self-preservation uh, option for this judge. He's an elected judge and he knows that if he takes this case away from the jury, uh, then he's going to have a lot of splaining to do. Uh, down the road if he takes it away from them now. Instead, let's say he really is considering granting this mistrial, either with prejudice or without prejudice. A massive difference between the two for the defendant. But let's just say for now, he's considering whether or not to grant it as it is. If he lets the case go to the jury and there's an acquittal across the board, which I, I believe that this judge thinks is a very strong possibility that this is going to be an acquittal across the board, 
I don't know. If, I don't. I, that's not saying that I believe that, but I think that he believes that. Then his his gamble pays off. Then he doesn't have to be in the unenviable position of taking a case away from a jury because it's a moot question. It already was resolved. It was already. I mean, the, the jury acquitted him. He doesn't have to rule. The judge doesn't have to rule on this motion for a mistrial. Then if the jury does convict on any of the charges, then the judge may swoop in and uh, essentially declare a mistrial based on those pending motions. Now, a lot of folks are saying, well, that seems like that seems like putting your thumb on the scale. And I guess it does. Yes. Yeah, it does. I mean, but at the same time, it's like a veto. Uh, a veto. you know, it is a, a and by the way, at the close of the prosecution's case in every jurisdiction that I'm aware of, uh, you always make a motion for a judgment of acquittal. You basically say, OK, so the prosecution's case is over. They failed to meet their burden before we even put on a single witness. Uh, so we're asking, judge, that you need to take this away from the jury. And it's almost universally denied. Really, you make that motion to preserve it for appeal. But uh, so that's an example of a judge. He can take the case away from the jury, but it's not that unusual. I've had it happen in one of my cases where a verdict of guilty was entered against a co-defendant. And I th- it felt like a year later we were back in for sentencing. It must have been less than that. But a year later, the judge ruled on the motion for acquittal. And a- here comes this guy getting ready to be sentenced to years and years for a major drug case. And the judge says, I've reconsidered this acquittal motion and you're free to go. Holy moly. So it does happen. And, uh, you know, the reality is judges don't want to make snap decisions on something as as important as that. So they will take it under advisement. But, yes, it can appear to an observer that if that's what happens, if there is a guilty verdict and then he swoops in and says, oh, now that there's a guilty verdict, I am going to declare a mistrial. It's going to feel pretty darn unfair to folks who were looking for a conviction as if the outcome has already been preordained now. Shouldn't it be a mistrial on the merits of that motion, regardless of the outcome of the jury? Like if he, if the judge thinks it's a mistrial, why wouldn't he declare that in the event of an acquittal? Right. I mean, yes, but those things exist in different parallel. You make a very good point, but legally they exist in different universes in that you know the judge is essentially letting the jury decide it but he could declare the mistrial uh if the jury comes back with a verdict that is uh guilty but you're right i mean look to to, there's no way around it that the way the judge would explain it is look i did let it go to the jury but uh, but only for the purposes of an acquittal so that doesn't that doesn't seem fair but i guess In the end, it's somewhat fairer than just taking it away from them now. I guess he's saying, I'm giving you, the jury, the opportunity to reach the result that I want you to reach. <laughs> so you're right, though. I mean, that is, I've had it happen no, I, in my cases. Usually, I, you you make a case and I'm like, oh, okay, I didn't go to law school. Now I get mm-hmm. it. That's infuriating. I can't believe it works that way. This time, I'm like, absolutely not. Absolutely right. not. Like, none of this makes any logical sense to me. It doesn't make any legal sense to me. Like if 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 a trial is going to be a mistrial, it's because something has gone wrong. That thing goes wrong regardless of the verdict the jury returns. And I I don't I I don't think anybody in America who didn't go to law school is going to accept that that is a normal course of action for the court, that the jury is going to come back and say, all right, he's guilty. And the judge is like, all right, now I'm going to take it away from you. Like that feels worse than like take it away right now. If it's a mistrial, take it away right now. Right. Before we know what they're going to say. 
for what it's worth, my prediction, and I'm, I'm about to say something that may come back to haunt me, but my <laughs> prediction is that even if there is a, a guilty verdict, that this judge will not take it away from the jury. I, I've, in my opinion, I've had judges like this before that seem aligned with the defense. And look, I think I can safely say that, in my opinion, he seemed aligned with the defense. And by the way, you know, I'm a little biased, but... You know, it, it doesn't feel that bad once in a while to see a judge align with the defense because 99 percent of the time yeah. these are former prosecutors who are uh, yeah, more than happy to side. On this. Yeah. yeah, I really do. Yeah, obviously. no, I get I mean, it. So, I get it. So look, I mean, not I, you know, always do I feel badly, house, you know, do I feel yes. badly for the prosecution <laughs> that they were yelled at by the judge? No, because all it, it seems like my entire <laughs> career has been me getting yelled at by the judge. Right. Maybe deservedly right. so. But that's just my bias. So anyway. Uh, you know, I think more likely the judge is doing a lot of theater, yelling at the prosecution. But I mean, to take it away from the jury when he knows that in on appeal, it's much more likely that some of these issues will uh, will result in a reversal or a vacate, you know, vacating the uh, the guilty verdict. And I, you know, you need to be prepared for that because that is a, there are a lot of appealable errors already in this case and not long shots. I mean, these are real uh, major constitutional issues that would be raised in the event of a conviction on any, any of the counts. Can you, can, what are some of them? So here, there are two major, actually, there are now three major points for appeal that I can see. Uh, let's start with the least uh, grievous, and it's the most recent one. There was a motion for a mistrial based on the prosecution's alleged failure to turn over discovery. Now, discovery is a common complaint in criminal trials. Here's why. The system is set up for disputes because it, here are the rules. The defendant is not allowed to see absolutely everything in the prosecution's files, but the prosecutor does have to turn over certain things that fall into certain categories. Exculpatory evidence is an example. Uh, but who makes that decision about what the defense gets to see? The prosecutor, their adversary. Uh, so, because of that, then that's where the controversy is set up. You know, who watches the watchman? It's the prosecutor that decides what the defense sees. And ultimately, only the prosecutor ever knows what they didn't disclose. So in this case, the defense is claiming that the prosecution turned over a video that was one sixteenth the size in terms of data or however you want to say it, uh, uh, of a, a video that was shown to the jury. And that uh, 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 definition or that clarity of video is critical because it is the only evidence that the prosecution claims shows that Kyle provoked the initial attack and provocation is the entire case for the prosecution. Uh, I can get into that, but let's move on to the other two grounds. Ground less in the middle is you have the prosecution's supposed violation, uh, knowing violation of a motion that uh, was already decided upon by the judge. And basically, it was to exclude what's called character evidence. There was specific, you know, bad acts evidence. And that came in the form of a CVS video where Kyle Rittenhouse was saying, ah, I wish I had my gun, I'd shoot these these rioters. The prosecution wanted it in. Uh, the judge ruled that it stayed out. The prosecution made reference to it and started to bring it in, believing on their own that the defendant had opened the door. That was their argument. Basically, you know, opening the door means hey, if something's excluded, but the other side brings it up, well, that opens the door and I get to delve into that. But here's the thing. He didn't ask the judge if he could go there. He just decided on his own that the judge's order was superseded or overruled effectively by what the defendant said. So 
that was another thing that got him yelled at. But here is the most egregious alleged violation that during cross-examination, the prosecutor began asking questions twice, uh, asking questions about essentially that Kyle Rittenhouse had the opportunity to tell a story to police, but did not tell a story to police. That is, in my personal opinion, a knowing, deliberate, tiptoeing up to the line and possibly over it of commenting on a defendant's post-arrest silence. That is a well-known no-no. You can't do that. And if you, so, so did he cross it? I'm not sure, but he is, I don't know how to think of an analogy for this, but to even go close to that DMZ, to that, you know, Mm -hmm. that uh, demilitarized zone of constitutionality is itself uh, not a good idea. I mean, if you, if you do that, then you do it at your own risk. And I think the judge basically said that when he was yelling at the prosecutor. So those are three very fertile grounds for appeal. They're not long shots. They are real grounds for appeal. And, uh, and if convicted, I would expect that it, probably most likely the constitutional violation will be alleged on appeal and it might be successful. Hmm. Did the prosecution do all that they could in this particular case? It feels to me like that last example is something even I, who have never practiced law a day in my life, know you can't do that. You can't ask a question that would be like, well, why didn't you tell the police that you didn't do it? You can't. I mean, like everybody knows that who watches Law and Order, Danny. Well, how is the prosecutor in this very high profile case making that mistake more than once? So I think and again, please understand, I'm biased. I'm a defense attorney. But I, uh, you know, in in my opinion, that is the problem with this case is that the prosecution is doing absolutely everything they can to win. And that is not the duty of a prosecutor. The duty of a prosecutor is to achieve justice. The duty of a defense attorney is to win uh, by fair play, but you know, by any means necessary, as long as it's lawful and fair. Uh, it may not even need to be fair, candidly. <laughs> but uh, but the prosecution is, in my opinion, you know, they they've done a very good job of doing absolutely everything they can to win. And by that, I mean, they've raised a lot of issues, especially in their closing, that aren't really even very legally relevant. Uh, You know, essentially, you know, their argument, their unofficial argument is that Kyle was provoking uh, just by being a 17-year-old with a firearm walking around Kenosha. And I got to tell you something. Do I think personally Kyle Rittenhouse should have been there? Heck no. If I have have a kid and he says, hey, you know, I'm going to go, walk around uh, a riot with an uh, AR-15 style weapon, I-, I would say absolutely not. I don't care if they're 25. I don't care if they're 33. I'm not letting them, you know, I'm not letting them leave the house. Yeah. So yeah. I do I think know. that it was that it was uh, a bad thing for him to be there? Absolutely. It was a big mistake. Do I think also that when I even, you know, here in New York, sometimes you walk around in uh, Penn Station and you see uh, actual National Guardsmen with, you know, real uh, military weapons. And it's jarring, right? So yeah. I can see morally how a citizen walking around open carrying a militaristic weapon can be, and I'm using air quotes here, provoking uh, to people during a riot. But it's not legally provocation. Legal provocation in Wisconsin is two things. Number one, it has to be an unlawful act. Number two, that unlawful act must in fact provoke an attack. So that might be like a punch in a bar fight or something like that. 
his act of walking around with a with a firearm is not itself an act of provocation. But the prosecution really laid on uh, that angle during their closing, which I think was improper, arguably objectionable, but very effective. So just to give you an example, I do think the prosecution has done everything they could. And candidly, I think that's the problem. I think they've they have gone all out to win this at all costs. And I don't believe that's the duty of the prosecutor. Hmm. I, I just I like yes to the provocation or yes to the uh, you know, it makes you feel unsettled when you see National Guards in Penn Station. I remember that coming in after 9-11 and being like, whoa, I really don't want this to be our new reality. And now it is the, the reason Kyle Rittenhouse is is a, a, a late teen like Watching a 17-year-old with an AR-15 is completely different than seeing a uniformed National Guardsman with an AR-15. Like, are yeah. we, are, is there legally no difference? No, there's none. I mean, in fact, cool. because Wisconsin is an open carry state. And, and you know, it, look, right. I grew up right across the lake from where this all happened. And one of the things we, it's easy to forget is that a lot of these jurors, I was never a hunter, but 100% of my friends were hunters and gun owners and everything. I was just an East Coast transplant who was like on a safari in a new culture. <laughs> and it's, you got to understand, That's your this, is a, this is a land. Oh, I had, I had to buy, I didn't own jeans. I had to buy flannel. I didn't know where all this <sighs> stuff was. But you have to understand, this is a land, this is a part of the country where, you know, men get a week off in the fall to go deer hunting with their parents. They have weapons in fact by the way that is why the weapons possession charge against rittenhouse was dismissed essentially because of a provision that creates an exception you know it was, it was a law that was designed to target gang violence but allow underage kids to continue to hunt with long uh, rifles so that's why that got dismissed i mean that's you know i you know i hadn't when you think about it that the culture uh, of that state's law actually resulted in the acquittal or not the acquittal the dismissal of the firearms possession charge because underage kids are supposed to have long guns to go hunting so even though you don't hunt just to give you an idea even though you don't hunt with that specific gun though pardon you wouldn't hunt with an ar-15 though but it still applies well Yes, because it, it relates to barrel length. The statute, as it was originally oh enacted, was designed to, to combat sawed-off shotguns. Because so that's, so that's how they wrote it. Because that's how they wrote it on purpose. Um, so, if, if it was supposed that... to narrowly allow kids to, to <clears throat> hunt with a specific barrel length, why on earth would it be appropriate to carry them on a downtown residential street? Well, because Wisconsin's an open carry state. So, I mean, there is a yeah. distinction between if you're going to carry it concealed, you need a license. But if you're going to carry right. it out in the open, some of the Western states have, have decided that, look, you can carry uh, you can carry rifles out in the open as long as everybody can see them. I mean, it's hard to conceal a rifle anyway. I mean, you're yeah. not you, know, you can't stick that in your pocket. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, it's an open carry state. So for whatever whatever the, the reason uh, you can carry a firearm, open carry, uh, and that's what Kyle Rittenhouse was doing. So I have a specific question about the self-defense, affirmative defense aspect of this case. Um, you know, he killed three different people, and each person that he killed, you know, had different, there were different circumstances. Um, it was all sort of in a series of events, a chain of events, um, but it, but each person, um you know, had had a different set of facts associated with them. So, for example, one person had a skateboard, another person had a gun, 
And then there was a mentally ill person, the first person killed, who didn't have anything. So, right. I, so is the is the way the jury is deliberating in this moment over many counts? Um, are they considering the totality of this? <laughs> Um, right. Circumstance. That's not the right phrase. You know, that's not what. So, I so it, yeah, I think I can first or or just an editorial. Yeah. yeah, an editorial note. He killed two people. So and two that people, was uh, me, the last Huber, person shot. Skate, excuse me. La- yeah. Right. Sorry. Apologize. Yeah. Apologize. Anthony Huber, the skateboard guy, and he killed also uh, Joseph Rosenbaum, who was the initial confrontation in the parking right. lot. And so when the jury's considering self-defense, and I have to say, I've reviewed the jury instructions. They're very convoluted. And I think if there is a, a conviction, I believe it might be related to the, the language of the jury instructions because they are really, really hard to follow. But I'll try to summarize how these things all relate. Self-defense in Wisconsin, once the defendant raises it and has some evidence, the prosecution must disprove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And there are a couple different ways they can do that. They can prove that the attack on Rittenhouse was not immediate. It wasn't actually happening. They can prove that his uh, perception of, uh, of deadly force was not reasonable. Uh, there are a couple different other ways they can chop away at self-defense. But the prosecution has to disprove self-defense in this case. However, what they did strategically, and this goes back to doing everything they can to win, Uh, They discovered this new evidence halfway through the trial, video image images that they say show Kyle pointing his gun at somebody before the Rosenbaum attack. Now, pointing your gun at someone that falls into the world of provocation, which is why this was so hotly contested. But because they discovered that only midway through the trial, their opening uh, had absolutely nothing to do with provocation. And yet, because there was some evidence of it, there is a jury instruction on provocation. I'll explain what provocation is. The idea of provocation is a legal concept in Wisconsin and elsewhere that if you start a fight, you cannot claim self-defense when the fight Mm -hmm. results. So the reason this was such a quiet but major victory for the prosecution is that if the jury buys provocation and it's in their jury instructions, then that upends Rittenhouse's entire self-defense. There's no chance of self-defense, right? No, that's not exactly. There is a chance. However, to reacquire self-defense, Rittenhouse must show that he withdrew from the confrontation and that he additionally uh, gave notice that he was withdrawing. Now, obviously, that notice doesn't need to be a telegram or an email, (laughs) but notice is important because if you have a firearm and you're running away from a fight, that might not be you trying to get away or withdraw. It may be you trying to reload or recharge your weapon. Right, 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 right. So so that is why those two elements are are important. He can regain self-defense. Does the defense have the argument that he was running away? Absolutely. The prosecution, you know, for them, that's not enough. So anyway, the provocation, if bought by the jury, could completely destroy his self-defense argument. I want to. I want to make sure oh, we get this we're already on the please break. break from the producer. Oh no! <laughs> we have, we have no, I don't want to get in left. trouble. But I, I like the law school that we were having. Damn it! I know. Sorry, Danny. Danny, you got to come back. Sorry, you got to come I, back I, I, because provocation is important. Yes, provocation is important. I'm happy to come back. As you probably know, I've been on air all week. I'd love to come back and yes. uh, keep talking about this case because it's fascinating. Sorry, it is. And as soon as end, we, we got have... the please break, and whenever I get the please break, I'm like, I'm in trouble. You know when there's but a do please. Not, you know do really not get it. the producer angry at you. I know that rule. Do not. When they're, when they're shouting rap, you got to rap. 
Danny Savalos, thank you so much for being here. We will have you back very soon to help us unpack this verdict whenever we get it. We appreciate you as always. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening. 